0: Wow, I can't believe it. I'm here hosting the Public Power Underground for all of you electric utility enthusiasts. Today, I wanna talk to you about the power of Western grid integration. We live in interesting and challenging times, more and more clean energy goals, electrification, climate-driven extreme weather events, increasing worry that we're marching towards a future that is not adequately addressing reliability. To be able to deal with all of these change agents, the power of the grid and the interconnected grid community are going to need to be part of the solution. Grid integration is in the DNA of the Western Power Pool. For over 80 years, the pool has been helping our member utilities find ways to coordinate their operations and their planning to get more out of the system when we work together as a whole. Whether it's contingency reserve sharing, transmission planning, grid operations training, the WPP has shaped itself as a critical partner for Western grid integration to tackle some of the most challenging issues facing industry. One of these is resource adequacy. And we have our sites on a regional approach to RA, the Western Resource Adequacy Program or RAP, which has been talked about on this program many times for which I'm grateful. At the time of this recording, we anxiously await action by FERC on our RAP tariff. Whether that means we're getting a clean approval order, or if it means we have more work to do this year, RAP is coming. What is especially exceptional about RAP is that it is a Westwide standalone RA compliance program focused on load serving entities that demanded the program be built They built it themselves by and large, and they are willing, even anxious, to voluntarily join this program, even though it subjects them to compliance obligations and potentially compliance charges. This commitment is a recognition by industry that when we operate together, we can achieve our goals and access benefits that we simply can't when we're acting alone. So... When it comes to the question of RA, there's certainly an abundance of scholarly and analytical work out there, citing the shortcomings of the traditional approach to RA or suggesting all kinds of innovations. And while RAP does include some customized design elements that are tailor-made for the West, its core elements are standard, but it's an important starting point. It will give the West a fair and well-constructed set of signals about where we need to head if our future is going to be a reliable one. Also, RAP independent governance is a promise that we will continually evolve the program and improve the program with time and experience. RAP is not an RTO, it's not a market, but it is a critical step for the West and essential to the building blocks that we're putting together for our future. It has the potential to support a single or multiple market future by bringing to bear the benefits of the largest RA footprint possible, provided we can deliver solutions that guarantee RAP's value proposition across these markets. So stick around, more on this and so much more. We have a great show for you. And so live from our Zoom cubes, it's the Public Power Underground.
1: We started in hard times to bring us all in Into the laughter through thick and through thin For public power enthusiasts without and within Roll on, enthusiasts, roll on Roll on, enthusiasts, roll on Roll on, enthusiasts, roll on on. We're likely recruiting you to come and join on Roll on, enthusiasts, roll on. We bring in some people way smarter than us.
2: I'm Paul Dockery.
1: I'm Almas Nagesh.
3: And I'm Crystal Ball, the Executive Director of the Pacific Northwest Utilities Conference Committee and this week's Public Power Underground Special Correspondent.
2: Joining Almaz, Crystal, and I as this week's celebrity guest star is Sarah Edmonds. Sarah is the president and CEO of the Western Power Pool. The Western Power Pool is a nonprofit corporation based in Portland, Oregon, that helps its members coordinate operations and planning by providing a range of grid integration services. <laughs> including transmission and hydro analysis and planning, training for grid operators, contingency reserves and frequency response sharing programs, um, and most recently, the regional approach for addressing resource adequacy. Sarah, great intro. Welcome back to Public Power Underground.
0: So good to be here. I've been on the underground in various forms, but never as the guest host, so I'm really excited to be a part of it.
2: Yes, and you really nailed the SNL tie-in to live from the Zoom. I I loved it. On today's episode of Public Power Underground, we're approaching some electric utility and electric utility adjacent news from an executive officer's perspective. We'll talk resource adequacy, program design, market-based rate inquiries from FERC, interoperability, and interregional transmission. Amaz will pose an unscripted, unfiltered, and possibly Unfair question to Sarah in a segment called Almaz's Insightful Question of the Week. Then we'll close out the episode by short-circuiting our way through the rest of the topics we didn't get to this week in a segment we're calling Short to Ground.
1: But before we get started, a reminder for friends of Therese Hampton, please plan to join us in celebrating her life and work on on Friday, February 24th in Portland. Therese, a Northwest Utility leader, suffered a fatal bicycle accident in September of 2022. A group of Therese's close friends have organized an open house style gathering from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. at the Oregon Museum of Science and Industry in Portland. And a link for RSVPing to the event will be sent out in the show show notes. So please join us in celebrating the, the special life that was Therese Hampton.
3: Paul, thanks for um, making sure we mentioned that on today's episode. uh, Therese had a positive impact on our region um, and a um, very big impact on what we're going to be talking about today. So it is appropriate to mention uh, the celebration of her life and work. Um, Wanted to also mention that uh, we've been able to set up a Scholarship, um, in Teresa's name, the Teresa Hampton Endowed Scholarship for Economics and Business at Portland State University. And you can make donations to that scholarship. What we're looking to do is to assist women and other underrepresented groups in economics and business, and hopefully fostering the next generation of Northwest utility leaders.
2: I love it. Uh, is there, I can probably put a link to that in the show notes, right? Along with the link to the RSVP. That would be awesome. We can send it out in the show notes.
3: I'll get you that information.
2: Anything you wanted to add, Sarah?
0: Just that it's going to be a, a really difficult event. I, I, I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to celebrating Therese. She had a huge impact on me personally. She's also one of the founding forces behind RAP. So Crystal mentioned this, everything we talk about today, it really was seeded and started by and large uh, by the effort and the ability of Therese to bring people together around common cause.
2: Yes. Bring people together, one of Therese's superpowers. And uh, so we'll bring everybody together to celebrate her life. That will be a good good way to acknowledge and and, uh, and mourn. We all need to mourn. Yeah. yeah. So, our first segment is Public Power Desktop, where we close out some browser tabs of energy and energy-adjacent news. But first, a quick word from our presenting sponsor. The presenting sponsor of Public Power Underground is the Energy Authority. The Energy Authority is a nonprofit company that specializes in portfolio management and prides itself on leading communities through today's energy transformation. Owned by Public Power Entities, TEA is more than just adjacent. They are as underground as it gets. TEA is on a mission to help clients maximize the value of their assets while meeting their power supply goals. By providing expertise in energy trading, advanced analytics, advisory, and renewable solutions, TEA equips public power utilities with access to state-of-the-art resources and technology systems so they can respond competitively in the changing energy markets. With over 60 other Public power utilities proudly partnering with TEA to tackle their energy future. It's time for you to consider breaking ground too. Let TEA help you navigate the uncertain future of our industry by visiting org to learn more. That's teainc.org to learn more today. Okay, Almaz, you've got the first story, take it away.
1: All right, so Paul, Matt and I, uh, and- for the last session, had a had the pleasure of interviewing Professor Jacob Mays. During the discussion, we discussed the industry led development of a resource adequacy program in the West that was organized by the Western Power Pool and culminated in a tariff filed at FERC for the Western Resource Adequacy Program. Now. We tried to get him to choose between describing the RAP as a great resource adequacy program or the greatest resource adequacy program, but of course he wasn't having it. He did dodge the question, but the conversation ended with helpful considerations for a resource adequacy program like the RAP. There were areas to consider on the design of an RA program. Uh, So number one, how good the program's metrics are at accrediting resources? Two, how strong are the penalties for non-performance? And three, does it allow for diversity of contracting that enable um, efficient sharing of risk? So those were those were the, the three uh, characteristics that he said were important. And so because that conversation is really fresh and, and it's insightful, do you mind discussing right now briefly how the RAP um, which is in uh, some of our unbiased opinion. <laughs> they may be biased. Maybe biased. <laughs> Just a little bit. <laughs> um, how does the, the, the rap yeah. meet those three things?
0: Yeah. Thanks, Almaz. I mean, of course, I think it's the greatest, but I think uh, if you listen to the cold open comments I made, I think what I'm trying to say is that rap is a very good program. And it is an absolutely critical first step for the West. It is an actual program that's being operationalized into real action and real consequences. So it's moving beyond all of the different studies we hear about and see, which are very helpful, but this is a boots on the ground program. It's really necessary for moving forward. Where do we stand as a region on WRAP? So, I'm excited about RAP, of course. I'm excited about the change agency potential that it has for the West, but I'm also excited to see how it evolves, how it improves over time as we learn and as we have some experience. For me, what Professor Mays is saying with those different elements that you note is that an RA program based on capacity is only as good as whether or not the resources actually show up in the operations timeframe as energy. So um, I would maybe beg to differ with Professor Mays. I don't think that an RA program is not capacity. I think it's capacity with energy deployment. It also has to have real consequences of performance. And so in, in that respect, I think our program does address some of the things that Professor Mays is talking about. You know, he talks about accreditation. So we use a consistent set of counting rules in RAP for how these resources are supposed to show up for us. And for the first time in the West's history, we are coming up with standardized rules. They may vary by zone, but we're applying the same kind of rule to the same kind of resource region-wide. We've never done that before. In the past, we have all kinds of different ways utility by utility for counting up these resources. So a lot more transparency is gained on that. Are these methods perfect out of the gate? Probably not, but they are a wonderful starting point. They give us lots of room to build and to grow over time. Again, with experience. With respect to the financial signals or the the economic consequences of performance, he called them penalties, I would say our program is largely founded around the idea of sending the right financial or economic signals to incent the correct behavior. So we are not a backstop program. The pool itself is not able to procure or deploy, but we do need to put the right signals in place so that when we're in the planning phase, we have the appropriate compliance charge that would make it a very irrational choice For any participant to choose not to fully comply in the forward showing, because the cost of new entry times a multiplier at different scales is is not a rational economic choice. And it's been set up on, on purpose so that the right incentive is to comply, to go out there, to build, to procure, to do what we need to do. Uh, Similarly, in the operations program, there are very large compliance charges if you fail to deploy, if you are required to. So it's index price times Mm -hmm. multiple, multiple, multipliers. So again, we're trying to send a strong signal that you need to perform, and it's not going to be rational for you to choose to lean on the program. Finally, contracting. We are either a, a build or procure compliance framework. So, we have a big space in the program for showing us that you have contracts that meet our rules. We don't have any kind of centralized or consistent contracting terms and conditions. We're leaving those, at least for now, up to the participants to work with their counterparties to provide attestations or whatever the correct documentation is that demonstrate that this contract X or Y is meeting our requirements. So there's flexibility built in there, but there are kind of many similar principles or starting points that Professor Mays talked about with RAP.
1: So, so you when you think about those three elements that he described, you feel like the RAP is, is, is hitting all three of those. To some extent, I think you know. I I think uh, further
0: conversations with Professor Mays would be great. They might be a wonderful source for us to have continuous improvement learning opportunities for RAP because I think what he's envisioning is a couple steps beyond where we're at today. But again, one of my themes today is we don't have a region wide viewpoint on resource adequacy right now. We have many, many, many different views of where we're at and if we're okay. And so we need to start somewhere, and we need to make that program stronger and better as we grow.
2: Yeah, I think Professor May has made this comment that he's built his career around studying niche uh, resource adequacy uh, programs and methodologies. So yeah, I think uh, I think uh, this is right in his wheelhouse, and hopefully uh, we can, can. I I think it's really helpful to continue to kind of investigate, discuss, and think about the way to make improvements in this. Yeah. What, one of the areas he talked about, and you mentioned it a little bit, is like this capacity accreditation. Like, sure, like you start with capacity and then you accredit it to get to a resource adequacy metric. Um, can you talk a little bit about the the capacity critical hours and that kind of methodology that the RAP used to determine um, you know, for periods where we have historically been in stress and would expect to be in stress conditions again? How that was a framework for accrediting yeah, resources.
0: Yeah, so in the intro, I talked about how all, you know RAP is standard; it's fairly standard, but there are some areas where we have kind of tailored the design to meet the West Western topology, Western resources. And one of the things that we that we when I say we, I really mean all of the participant utilities that built RAP from the early days of the design. There was a recognition that. You know, we're way past peak demand in terms of RA. That, that is, everyone has fairly acknowledged. That's not a fair measure of what we need. We need to add some stressors. We need to understand what net peak is under a variety of scenarios. Our program takes um, a little bit of an innovative approach with the capacity critical hours, which I think of as like a lens for looking at data. What we're trying to do with capacity critical hours is there's a number of places in the program where we need to isolate what to measure and how to measure. Capacity critical hours is kind of finding a window of greatest historical challenge on our system. Hmm. So that window gives us the chance to capture a few different moving pieces, load, variable resources, what might be going on with hydro, and kind of capture that window as a very reasonable slice with which to look at the rest of our data set. So I think we're getting beyond you know, very, very traditional approaches of just looking at a peak hour, we're layering in additional constraints, additional challenges. And again, that's an area that we've said, we're gonna watch it closely, we're gonna see how it performs and we're very
3: willing to modify over time. What I thought was really helpful, um, Paul, in uh, listening to your interview with Jacob Mays is when he talked about what happens when something goes wrong. Um, And so that really helped kind of center me in that conversation, um, helping me today too as Sarah talks about this. Um, And, you know, we're all kind of bundled up today. Um, Mm -hmm. It's a cold day in January in a dry January. And so, I do think, you know, could something go wrong um, under these conditions? And um, if something did, Sarah, is the interim program working? What are you seeing today over, you know, this cold snap? Um, Are are we stressing resource adequacy in our region?
0: Yeah, we've had the interim program in place for a couple of years now, it's it's very low tech. It's basically setting up a way for participants in these early days of RAP to request help. It's just a different way of asking for help. And many participants have called on it over time. Uh, again, we see these requests, as you know, Crystal, in times of real system stress. So a really cold day, a really hot day. I think what we see out there is that as a as a region, and I'm talking broadly about the West, We're doing okay. We're getting through systems of, you know, periods of great stress on the system. But I would also observe that there hasn't been a lot of coincident stress in all the regions across the West. We've gotten through these periods because one of the other regions, maybe Kaiso, maybe desert Southwest is doing just a little bit better than we're doing or vice versa. And so among this pool of of participants and we've got RAP participants and all of them, somebody is situated in a way that they can help. And that's what RAP is doing. It's essentially formalizing that framework for how to get assistance from your neighbor. Um, I think that you you mentioned these tough weather events. They're very extraordinary in some cases. RAP uses a 1-in-10-year approach. It's, again, pretty standard, and there has been increasing observation among RA programs and stakeholders really everywhere that maybe 1-in-10 isn't the right measure anymore. These weather events are described as more like 1-in-50, 1-in-80, but they're happening more frequently. So, again, just acknowledging that it's a really important starting point. RAP essentially puts a framework around the ability of the region as a whole, to help each other, but we need to keep a close eye on the metrics and evolve them because things are changing very rapidly out there in the world
2: yeah. um, this this idea that we're our our circumstances are changing like the system's changing and the events that were extreme are becoming more normal. so one in ten if you one in ten historic accounting is different than maybe one in ten future accounting and as you were talking through, um, kind of it being a good program and use the way you talk about using capacity critical hours. I would say in my hypothesis and the way I think about Professor Maze's framework, it's almost like the methodology you use for historic capacity critical hours, instead of using the historic, you're basically predicting when that capacity critical hour in the future would be. And that's really the You can't do that at the beginning, but to think in the framework, like that's what a good program would do. You'd be predicting that when those hours of critical need would be, and you're accrediting resources that you expect would show up during that future period, um, is like the way I've thought through the wrap in terms of what Professor Mace was talking about. Does that make sense? It does make sense.
0: And again, I think it's an area for future evolution. We yeah. have, you know, we've, as every year goes by, we're capturing some extreme weather event because it almost seems like every year we have some crazy winter or super hot summer. And so that's getting captured in the data set as we march forward. But what you're talking about is much more forward looking, uh, an aspirational place to be.
2: Yep. I'm aspirational, Sarah. <laughs> I like to think about what could so. be. Yeah, that's the goal, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. Um, We got more to talk about, including this is a program that uh, tariff has filed at FERC. So let's get to the next topic and talk a little bit more about that. I think you've got the next one, Crystal.
3: All right. In a November 21st, 2022 letter to the Western Power Pool, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission requested additional information on the Power Pool's tariff filing to establish the Western Resource Adequacy Program. One area of inquiry from FERC's letter was regarding market based rate authority. Can you unpack the question, the reason for the question, and how the Power Pool responded? I read the letter, but it's great to be able to talk to you about it.
0: Yeah, I appreciate it. It's a great opportunity because I feel like market power, market-based rates, it's one of these really weedy areas of precedent. And so it's a really great opportunity. I mentioned in the intro, we are waiting on the edge of our seats for action by FERC. Um, That action, I hope, Is just a clean approval order and we're off to the races. Um, It's also possible that they're going to require us to do some more thinking. And if I have to wager, I'd say it would be around the area of the questions that came from FERC itself around does RAP, how does it work with the commission's precedent, their rules around market-based rate authorizations? So let me lay it out for you. Of course, FERC is concerned with market power because FERC's jurisdiction is making sure that wholesale sales are just and reasonable, that the rates are just and reasonable. And so to the extent there's the potential or actual market power, market manipulation, you're not going to get rates that are J&R. And so looking very carefully at this issue is a long part of their precedent. FERC requires sellers to make application to FERC and show through a series of different tests and screens that they lack market power. And if they can do that adequately, they are issued authorizations to trade at a market-based rate. So something more than simply their production costs, their cost-based rates. And in the West, We have a lot of trading. We have a lot of market-based rate authorizations. You have a lot of sellers who are allowed to trade at market-based rates with some counterparties and are not allowed to trade at market-based rates with others. They must trade at cost-based rates because they couldn't pass one or more of the screens that are looking for vertical or horizontal market power generally focused on does that seller have too much of a share over generation or transmission deliverability. And so our program is essentially relying on the bilateral commercial space to facilitate wrap. So we are asking parties Uh, to hold back capacity for the RA capacity pool based on their forward showings. And if they are a little bit deficit or a little bit surplus, they'll have some obligation to that pool. We are standing there in the middle of all of those determinations and matching up deficient participants in RAP with surplus participants in RAP. We do the matchups. We dictate the quantity, the obligation, the counterparties and the price. This is all pursuant to our RAP tariff and we just match everybody up and everyone goes out and essentially follows our instructions. But in so doing, we may be matching up a deficit entity in RAP with a surplus entity for whom they do not have market-based rate authorization otherwise to trade. And so we have to answer this question. Now, FERC doesn't strictly prohibit parties from trading if they have the potential for market power. They allow, obviously, cost-based trading or if there are appropriate mitigations in place. And our argument, really the core of the arguments we made back to FERC is that the RAP program itself, as embodied in the tariff, as dictated by the tariff, is the appropriate and reasonable mitigation that prevents any seller from influencing any kind of undue market power over a buyer over the marketplace. So again, we've pointed to the tariff, which defines the settlement price. That's not set by any offers being made. There are no offers being made. The offer is really the program itself, the pool that we're creating. We determine based on whose deficit, by how much, and who is surplus at a place where they can trade, what the volume, the quantity should be, the price, the obligation. So we've made many strong arguments. Um, obviously, it is my hope that those arguments carry the day. Uh, if that is not the case, I'm very confident that in short order, we will gather together the participants in the program We will collaborate with stakeholders, come up with a solution, and refile that element of the proposal and work as quickly as we can to get RAP up and running officially under the tariff.
3: Well, I feel really lucky to get to talk to you about this, especially after reading um, WPP's response uh, to FERC. uh, You know, it just helps to have this context. Um, But I do feel like that letter was pretty strong on a couple of things. And one is a reminder to FERC that um, the program is intended to be last resort. Um, And so, you know, what I understand is um, the settlements based on um, indexes, right? Um, And there's a price for that. Um, And uh, the program designed to encourage participants to procure outside of RAP. Um, But if something happens, right, if something happens, something bad happens, we've got a whole program for um, uh, just um, mitigating that market power.
0: Absolutely. And that's a really critical point, Crystal, which is we don't, Uh, just communicate with participants the day ahead. We're talking to them seven days out. So we have the program operator in place. The program operator is closely watching the real situation on the ground and is letting folks know, hey, looks like you're going to be deficit compared to what you said you'd have and what you would need in your forward showing. You look like you may have an issue. That's their heads up to go out and fix this problem. We want that. We want to encourage utilization of traditional trading practices to resolve these issues. The settlement rate, to your point, Crystal, in the program is set intentionally high. It's doing a couple things there. It's obviously incenting these potentially deficient participants to go out into the market and trade with whichever partners they're authorized to trade at, just as they normally would do Mm -hmm. in any other circumstance so the rate is doing that the rate is also i think importantly you know we're asking participants in this program to hold back capacity for the pool without the rap a rational regulated overseen utility if they're looking surplus Their rational choice is to sell that surplus off so that they can return those proceeds to customers. Mm -hmm. That is right. It is reasonable. But in a world where we're concerned about reliability and where we have wrap in place, we're creating a new layer, which is to ask participants, hey, I need you to I need you to hold that. Because someone else in the program may need it. And someday you might need some capacity in this program. And that's the quid pro quo of creating this new pool. But for us to ask that participant to sit on that capacity, we have to make sure the rate is not, you know, costing them an opportunity cost or otherwise hurting their customers hurting the way they're going to recover their costs. So that is the, the thinking behind it. And you're absolutely right. We're trying to get entities to go out there and fix the problem. Wrap is an insurance policy. RAP is a last resort, but if it is there, I think we have the right mitigations in place.
1: Can I follow up? Um, So in an ideal world, are you saying there there wouldn't be a situation where it makes sense for a utility to rely on the RAP for for an emergency? Um, Did I understand that correctly?
0: What I'm trying to say is that the settlement rate is set intentionally high so that more likely than not, it's going to make sense for that participant to solve their program their problem outside of the program it may not always be the case Almaz. I, I can't predict for sure what's going to happen with energy prices we certainly have seen volatility but really the intentional part of this is that rap was never created to be leaned on it was created as that last resort a perfect world i think the perfect world is sometimes we use the program because we need to, and because it's there, uh, we do expect that we will use it. We don't expect we'll use it a lot, but we we know we need it.
1: So, um, if you find that a particular entity or a particular or entities in a particular area are leaning on the on the program more than others, would you say what, what would that tell you about the program, and what would you train change uh, about it?
0: Yeah, I mean. I think one of the spirits that we're approaching the go forward of wrap once we operationalize it, we're experiencing it day to day, is that spirit of continuous improvement and close evaluation. In the proposal, one of the pieces that we have in there is to bring on an independent evaluator outside of the pool, outside of any participant, someone that can look at how the program performed and make determinations about where we need improvements. And the exact circumstance that you describe, Alma's, might be one of those areas, could be one of those areas where the independent evaluator is raising their hand and saying, we might have a problem here. I think it's also possible that the participants themselves will see the issue maybe sooner than anyone else. And there is a pretty thoughtful governance process, lots and lots of opportunities for concerns and issues to be raised and addressed.
3: Question for you, Sarah. Yeah. Will that independent evaluator report be made public?
0: Yes. <laughs> as we clarified to FERC, it was never our intention to keep that as We assume that the independent evaluator report will be a very useful tool for the independent board of the pool, for the committee of state representatives, for really all the stakeholder committees um, over the Western Power Pool.
2: Well, I will echo Crystal and say, it is wonderful to have you to kind of articulate this. And, and it's wonderful to have Crystal, you and Almaz here to kind of tease out some of these questions that I had not thought deeply enough about. I appreciate the this. opportunity. So this is wonderful. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. It's
0: obviously a really live issue.
2: Yeah, Uh, you did start talking about operationalizing some of these elements, which is a great segment or segue to our next article, actually. Amaz, why don't you take it away?
1: All right. So, the January 3rd issue of Platt's Megawatt Daily publication featured an interview with you about the future of the Western Resource Adequacy Program. In the interview, market interoperability was discussed as a key priority for 2023. You are quoted as saying, quote, it's not enough to say conceptually RAP, EDAM, and Markets Plus can work together. We need to get into very specific details, and that's what I'm hoping for in 2023. End quote. What does interoperability with multiple markets, whether bilateral and centrally dispatched or between multiple centrally dispatched markets look like?
0: Yeah. Okay. So I'll kind of start at the top, which is who is the Western Power Pool? We're a nonprofit member organization. We have a lot of different members that are going to want a lot of different things out of their future energy grid. And just looking across the West, and I don't think this is a secret to anyone, certain camps are already being declared for one market or another. Extended Day Ahead Market with KISO, Markets Plus with SPP. There's a lot of entities that are maybe leaning one way or another. No final decisions have been made, but it's it's all out there. And so we can see a world where we've got members that are going one direction or another, or maybe they're not choosing a market right away at all. But our job is to figure out how to make RAP work. We started with a set of principles. I'm going to paraphrase them here. Um, the principles are somebody's market choice, whatever it is, shouldn't stop them from being in RAP. For us, RAP is the prime objective. Reliability in this grid is what the prize is, and we have our eyes on the prize. So second principle, no matter what market is chosen, the way we make decisions about RAP matters needs to be respected, which basically means, hey, we built this really thoughtful governance structure for RAP, and we need to find a way to make sure that that's respected. Third, RAP. The bigger the footprint, the better for diversity benefits. We need to keep in mind the bigger, the better when it comes to diversity benefits. This is also true, I think, for markets, but when RAP is concerned, we right now have the potential to seize the benefits out of this west wide footprint, and we want to hold on to that. We want to fight for that. RAP requires participants to invest, to hold high quality transmission, to support a major portion of their portfolio. So whatever market is chosen, the market needs to find ways to preserve and protect that high quality supply and delivery priority. And that's probably the area of most um, sort of uh, technical details that we need to get into. Fourth, a RAP participant should be able to get value out of the wrap if they're in one market or the other. So the value proposition needs to be delivered the market choice shouldn't degrade the wrap value proposition for that participant. And then finally, let's all do what we can to make sure that a market overlay with wrap is still efficient and still providing benefits. So we've had those in place since the fall. Again, not they're not detailed, but they help us engage with the next set of questions, which is, how does this actually work when you start layering in real life scenarios and transactions that are going to occur in a market? If somebody has a wrap obligation that needs to be delivered by a bilateral trade, how is that trade going to be treated by one market or another, both uh, day ahead through real time? If an energy deployment is required, what's that going to look like? Maybe it's a different set of analysis if it's a block energy schedule, day ahead to real time, a little more complexity if day ahead to real time, we're talking about a variable resource where the quantity of transmission is going to need to change. We have been engaging or starting to engage with market operators on these questions and our vision. Our vision is that the Western Power Pool is, is going to be a leader in this conversation, I think, as it should, because we have the best vantage point on what RAP needs to deliver if we're gonna protect its value proposition. And so the idea here is that hopefully Q1 2023, we produce a paper, a paper that would get into transactional level details and get some feedback from both market operators about how in Kaiso's case, their existing rules would or wouldn't meet these principles, how we would adjust so that we can deliver what we need to and similarly with Markets Plus, although there's less detail to work with over there. So yeah. what's more a conversation about how should the rules be designed? But we are really focused on that. It is an important question for a lot of the entities that are considering their market choice. They also want to know well, what does it mean for RAP? And again, we're really trying to keep reliability at the fore and keep that the priority issue for the region. So looking at these questions and getting some answers out there is a huge priority for us this year. Oh, those are great principles, a terrific place to start from. Thank you. I have paraphrased them, but they are out there in, on the internets and I can provide a link, Paul, for the show notes
2: yeah that's that'd be a great thing it seems like there's a lot of complexity though in when going from the principles into how this would function um within the markets and influencing the the market design is ongoing on these day market structures so influencing those markets to make sure it's it would work uh, but that's just from an outsider's perspective Do, is there is there something simple i'm missing about interoperability um and the way like I think a little bit about like the holdback obligation versus a must-offer obligation, which is a you know how generally these resource adequacy programs are treated in centrally dispatched markets. Is there something simple here that I'm missing, or is it as complex as I think my brain is making it?
0: I, I think there are simple parts and complex parts. How's that for an answer? So that's
2: a perfect I, you answer. Know,
0: we don't have RAP does not have the engine behind it that a market does. So RAP, when when I talked about how we're matching up uh, surplus with deficit and linking up someone's holdback obligation with an energy deployment under the program, we're doing that uh, relying on the existing bilateral trading framework. We don't have a security constrained economic dispatch engine to create a dispatch priority order and get that additional layer of economic benefit potentially out of the RA capacity to energy stack. So we, we've acknowledged that. We've said many of the companies that have been part of the early design have always said, you know, we, we don't want to wait for a full market to address the issue of resource adequacy we need to address it now, yeah. but we need to do it in a in a thoughtful way so that when markets do come along, maybe there is some benefit. even maybe there's a way to integrate this RA program with whatever market engine we're talking about. So I think in that sense, there are some kind of simple concepts. We don't have that engine, but it's still a good thing to do. There's lots of tools in existing markets to honor transactions. You know, a self schedule is a tool that allows the market to receive the need for this transaction from A to B, whatever that looks like, um, and to treat it how it needs to treat it. I think, you know, of course, as I mentioned earlier, we're asking participants to go out there and to procure specific firm resources supported by a large portion of firm or conditional firm transmission. That's what they need to show us at forward showing to be able to pass their forward showings. That is the bargain that all the RAP participants are expecting one from the other. So in the operations program, you can trust it. It's a decent, reliable insurance program because if everyone came to the table making similar commitments, we should be able to get out of it what we put into it. But markets, they do various things. They they need to. They're running their optimization engines. They're looking at all the different inputs to the market. They're creating different plans. A lot of things can happen day ahead to real time. So our focus area is what is going to happen to those wrap obligation transactions day ahead to real time? Are they going to come out of the market engine at the same firmness and high quality that they went in? That's what we need to protect for. Yeah,
3: yeah. Well, when I get um, lost in the complexities, I think it's always good to go back to the basics. Um, There are a lot of studies uh, that cover uh, market design in the West and the um, attempts and the expansion of the... The benefits of expansion. Uh, And the latest is this draft summary report that's been prepared by NREL for the California State Legislature. Great report. I encourage people to read it uh, because it really is a good basic foundation about what we're looking at right now in the West and we're trying to advance. Good summary of the wrap in the report. Thanks, Crystal.
2: Yeah. Uh, I haven't read it yet, so please share it, Crystal. I will both read it and share it in the show notes. Good, good. I, I do, not to keep on this topic for much longer, because I think we've done a great job of covering it, but I do want to talk a little bit about the since this is a program that's been built and thought about for edge cases, right? You only want to use it in the extreme events. How Different markets treat those edge cases and how it operates within those edge cases um, seems to be the core of interoperability, right? Am I, am I underscoring really the, the, the critical elements correctly? Because if we're building a, a resource adequacy program, which I think you would be doing to account for areas and times of scarcity, you want to focus on how scarcity is built and dealt with in the markets.
0: You know, absolutely. And it, it does touch on an, another issue, which is this is all in the context of RAP, but there's a kind of a more general question, which is how will these markets deal with transactions on firm transmission? That's just a basic question. In this case, these are RAP transactions. So I think that there's a little bit more weight to the question because it goes to the heart of reliability in the Western interconnect for the RAP participants. But fundamentally, there are some general questions about firm transmission. How will that be dealt with? Um, how will that be protected again, day ahead to real time by the market operators? And you're right, when things are scarce and the system is tight, these questions become all the more critical. We don't expect wrap transactions to need to flow all the time. This is an edge case program, but nevertheless, um, gotta get to that detail so that we're ready.
2: That's right. And one of the benefits of pooling and one of the values is having a big footprint to pool over, which you know what that takes. It takes transmission. You want to talk about some (laughs) interregional transmission? I'll take it away. Mm. I think you got, or actually Crystal, you've got the next one.
3: Oh, I got the next one. All right.
2: I think you do. I I think you do. I do. We'll see. Take it away.
3: Federal Energy Regulatory Commission staff convened a workshop to discuss whether and how the commission could establish a minimum requirement for interregional transfer capability for public utility transmission providers in transmission planning and cost allocation purposes. They did that back in December of 2022. The workshop had uh, engagement across the industry with luminaries and friends of the underground like Simon... Mahayan and Travis Kavula. Um, industry commented on the topic uh, following the workshop. So reporting from Utility Dive highlighted an option some stakeholders have suggested, that FERC should require regions to be able to transfer at least 15% of peak load between neighbors. Under that requirement, the United States could need to add 114 gigawatt hours of transfer capacity between regions. So sir, have you been following this topic of interregional trans- transmission at FERC. And do you have any thoughts to share about what it could mean for the Northwest? Sure. So
0: I've been very curious in general about what is FERC going to do with transmission, especially in light of Chairman Glick's departure uh, recently. Chairman Glick has always been such a passionate advocate for transmission expansion Uh, A lot, I I believe a lot of the energy and momentum around the notice of proposed rulemaking for transmission planning and cost allocation was spurred on by by Chair Glick. And so the question arises, what does a a new reconstituted FERC mean for various initiatives? The one that you mentioned, there's a couple of others at play that I'll I'll touch on briefly. Um, The notice of proposed rulemaking for transmission planning and cost allocation that was a rule that we were kind of all expecting to come out sometime this year. So I'm unsure if that schedule is gonna be maintained. I noted when I was preparing for this that uh, new chair, Willie Phillips, just very recently said in, a, in some public comments that FERC's not gonna sit on their hands when it comes to transmission in light of these changes at the commission. And he's already starting to engage with colleagues and talk about what next steps are but if you've studied that particular noper you know that commissioner danley has some pretty serious concerns that the they've gone beyond the scope of the federal power act around just and reasonable rates and are really requiring policy that advances clean energy goals that at least commissioner danley feels is is a bit of a stretch i think he called the order at one point uh, a boondoggle so that that doesn't bode necessarily well. Uh, Commissioner Christie uh, supported the Noper, but had some concerns in a similar way around you know the scope of the potential rule and not going to support a rule that he feels exceeds their authority or threatens uh, to make rates unjust and unreasonable. So I think you've got you've got a little math there about which commissioners would support that particular Noper, which might not. Um, I watched uh, this particular minimum transfer capability workshop. Um, Thank you for absolutely blowing up my weekend. So I probably spent a few hours watching some of the the testimony. It was very interesting. My take on it is that, you know, FERC, has a tradition of being very interested in transmission expansion. That doesn't hold with every single commissioner they've had, but in general, Order 890, Order 1000, all of those different efforts are really trying to find ways that FERC can get transmission to be built. And so in this case, it, it looks like they're trying to find a way potentially in the interregional space. So between planning regions out here in the west we have a few northern grid which is uh, facilitated by the western power pool is one of them but of course there's also kaiso there's also west connect so between these regions and and i think probably more accurately more out east especially in light of the extreme weather events that have been paid very close attention to by the commission including winter storm uri which was talked about a lot during the workshop you know Could there be a hook there, a reliability hook for the commission to require some kind of minimum transfer capability, particularly to ride through some of these these more extreme events? Um, So I think the commission is looking at the interregional space. We've all been kind of wondering, were they going to try to innovate around interregional planning? Many of the panel members talked about kind of the real lack of any specifics around interregional planning. Um, there's always talk about the commission's precedent around benefits, how we're going to define benefits, observations that the current benefits methodology might be too sparse. Uh, maybe they need to expand the concept so that we can get more transmission into this. Um, but then a lot of other panel members, particularly those with Western perspectives saying, hey, we appreciate process and we appreciate suggestions, but don't make this prescriptive, keep flexibility that we need out here for the West. And I think there was broad recognition that, you know, states need to play a bigger role. That was something uh, all of you discussed with uh, Travis Kavula when he was on the public underground a couple of, um, of episodes ago.
3: Yeah, I, I noticed that some of the, that criticism was about what you were talking about earlier, Sarah, you know, Let's focus on improving existing processes. That might be better. Yeah, it came um, out. Yeah, but 114 gigawatts of transfer ca- capacity between regions, um, that's a lot that we don't have now in the United States. So it is, you know, within the United States. Um, that's a, a big cost. To it consumers. is a big cost, yeah. And I I remember
0: specifically... Travis, uh, talking to the commissioners about that potential 10 X cost concern, um, yeah. that their minimum proposals could really get unwieldy very quickly. Uh, that being said, I think there were a lot or a lot of other panelists or participants in the workshop who seemed to have somewhat of a glimmer in their eye about a new way to get some transmission off the ground. And this could be one way to do it.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Always a good reminder that there are lessons to learn from uh, regions outside of ours. Yeah.
2: I uh, I think with some of the commentary I read about this, uh, Rob Gramlich, who mm-hmm. uh, as a president, I think it's called like grid, grid strategies or something, um, having taking a more nuanced stance than just a 15 percent capacity transfer metric, but more making sure that the the you know, planning organizations have the flexibility to do it like, optimally, like do it with uh, cost effectively and stuff. Any, any, any guess on whether we could get him on the Public Power Underground sometime? Anybody know him? Yeah, we yes, Crystal is giving me a thumbs up.
3: I and, uh, with a friend, so I bet you could. I bet you could. You could. we can. I'm optimistic. Can. Yeah, yeah, I do Crystal's remember
0: up. something that that he said uh, during the panel, which I really appreciated because I think it's very true. So cost allocation was, you know, huge focus. Um, honestly, in the West, you know, I've talked about building blocks, putting all these things together. You know, we've we've addressed optimization through markets. We've got uh, different RCs, reliability coordinators. We've got um, we've got resource adequacy underway. One of the hardest nuts to crack is transmission cost allocation, not necessarily transmission planning. I think we've got really good planning fundamentals and approaches. But when it comes to selecting winners over losers and then giving that project some entitlement to a cost allocation for a construction, that is an area that's been very difficult for the West when it comes to these orders from FERC. And I remember on panel, Rob said something like, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. <laughs> and um, the death part of that would be the cost allocation piece. So the grand aspiration of more wire in the air, it does seem to have broad support in the West, even um, broadly acknowledged every conference I go to the need for it and how we need to find ways. But when it comes to cost allocation, a lot of nervousness, a lot of concern about the potential risk um, that could put on to customers. And that gets us all back to how we're going
3: to define benefits. And is that overly prescriptive? So that quote is attributed to the late Senator Bumpers from Arkansas. Okay, And it was Chairman Glick who used it in the context of everybody wants transmission, but nobody wants to pay for it.
0: Thank you, thank you for sourcing us accurately, Crystal on the float. I appreciate it. It just well, really it happened devastated. at Peanut. So yeah, um, it really resonated with me because I do yeah. think cost allocation is the hardest part. It's the hardest issue to solve out here. It's the yeah. thing that's made transmission be the last building block that we haven't yet addressed.
1: Uh, uh, here's a. Uh, do you think the issue is because? Um, Um, we keep trying to look at who's benefiting and by how much instead of um, thinking about electricity and and, and transmission infrastructure as a public good. And it doesn't matter who benefits. We all benefit uh, essentially.
0: I I love the philosophy behind your question. I I do think that's part of it, Almas. I think that it's kind of a philosophical question of what you think network transmission assets are out there to do. We have, um, you know, we don't have a fully integrated system out here in the West where transmission is just fundamentally dealt with differently. It's it's more part of the delivery cost of getting resources to load and the market is optimizing and security constrained dispatching. Out here in the physical, physical path, commercial path system, we really do think about, I have a transmission right, I have a TSR from A to B, and I've got that for 50 megawatts. And the benefit to me is the right to deliver A to B for 50 megawatts. I want an actual reservation if there's going to be a new transmission line. And that may not always be the case for big lines going from region to region. It might not be about that. It might be about resiliency. It might be about just greater reliability. It might be about lowering congestion costs overall. There is a greater good buried in that, but I think the traditional ways of um, looking at benefits, and then of course the, the complexity of trying to get cost recovery for a transmission cost, let's say for a regulated utility in front of a public utility commission, they don't always agree with that kind of greater good approach. They want to see what am I physically getting for this new cost?
2: And, I'll underscore the complexity of this topic was really well handled in PGP's market retrospective that our yeah. uh, friend Therese Hampton put together during her time at PGP. It's one of the documents in there, the table that they put together really underscored this topic for me and why it's such a complicated topic for the Northwest and the West in general. Yeah. That's so really a great
1: a lot way to, to go. Go.
2: go. ahead. Well, Amaz, you're up next. Uh, so we'll close out public power desktop And we will transition to our TIL segment, the day I learned segment. I thought I I had a bit of fun. Uh, I'm calling Almaz's insightful question of the week because she's been asking our guests what she's called, quote, unfair questions, but really turned out to be incredibly insightful if unfiltered and unscripted. So Almaz, you've got the floor. What insightful question do you have for Sarah this week?
1: Okay, so I don't know if it's just me but it seems like any conversation that i'm in or that i hear around the rap somebody will say but it's not a market <laughs> like <laughs> someone has to say and even t- today it was saying, kind of well, a joke yeah. a market. <laughs> um and, and so i'm i'm just curious do, do you think um that i know it's not a goal of the rap that but that it could be a consequence of the rap that um an absence, uh, an ap- a failure to develop a market in in the northwest. And we've got all the other markets, you know, Edam and Markets Plus, and everything that's developing outside of the web. But a market could wrap um, be enough that no market will develop in the west, uh, in the northwest. No, <laughs> <laughs> emphatic.
0: <laughs> no, there will be markets that. They- the, the thing, so RAP do, what RAP does the best that I would argue markets just cannot do is address reliability in a longer term planning horizon. That is the space for RAP or RA programs generally. Markets can add enhancements um, starting day ahead and moving to real time. And those are important. And of, of course, those help with reliability, but they are not RA programs. The West is. So interesting, Almaz, and so frustrating the way that it has evolved because we haven't done this all together. We we haven't been able to take up the out-of-the-box RTO construct and put the market optimization together with the resource adequacy requirements, together with the transmission planning and cost allocation, and make best use of all that data and information unsiloed. We haven't been able to do that for lots of reasons that go to the heart of. Western culture, individualism, the history of our balancing authority operations, the uniqueness and spread out nature of our topology, all of those things. So instead we've built these pieces together. Uh, But I do think that the tide is changing towards a deeper degree of grid integration. We're doing it on a building block basis, this RA piece over here, this market piece over here training transmission planning cost allocation maybe that's yet to come maybe that's an evolutionary space maybe that's northern grid on steroids i don't know but i think we are working towards that direction i think for rap i've mentioned before we don't have the benefit today of an economic engine to get us a economic dispatch savings out of the ra capacity resources I think that's an exciting idea. A lot will depend on making sure that wrap obligations that need to leave one market footprint or another can be delivered um, at their same high quality value. That'll be key, but there may be a potential to marry economic dispatch, increased efficiency and savings with RAP. I don't think that's where we're gonna start. We're certainly not starting from that point. We're more about how can we make these markets operate with RAP, respect these transactions without a full integration like the one that I'm conceiving of. But I think we are on that road to this greater degree of integration. RAP isn't going to be enough. Personally, I'm really excited about all of the market development. It's a really complex space. It's a Sometimes a very noisy space, but think about where we were just four or five years ago. Not really a ton of options on the table, and now we're all very, very busy, very well employed.
2: (laughs) Yes, very well employed. Uh, Thank you, Almaz, for your insightful questions of the week. Thank you, Sarah.
0: Thank you. Um, We're taking
2: a quick break, and when we come back, we'll close out the episode with a quick rundown of news stories we didn't get to in our TLDR segment we're calling Short to Ground. Almaz, um, did you know nuclear energy is America's largest source of climate-friendly power? Is that a thing you knew?
1: I did not know that. I would have said hydro. Um,
2: I, okay. Well, nuclear is probably in more parts of the country probably than hydro. Hydro is very river specific. Yeah,
1: I'm 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 very focused on the Northwest. In America, you're probably right.
2: Yes, nuclear. Sounds right. Love that about you. Okay. In fact, nuclear energy provides about 50% of the country's carbon-free electricity. And Energy Northwest, our friends at Energy Northwest, is a premier provider of carbon-free electricity in the Pacific Northwest. Energy Northwest's mission is to provide safe, reliable, cost-effective, responsible power generation and innovative energy and business solutions to its public power members and regional customers. Energy Northwest is proudly advancing the Northwest Clean clean energy future. To learn more, do you, know, do you want to know how to learn more, Almaz?
1: Yeah, give me the info. I need to know more.
2: Okay, okay. Let's, let's learn more. To learn more about Energy Northwest, visit their website at energy-northwest.com. That's energy-northwest.com. This is Short to Ground, a segment where we blow a fuse covering the news. I'm Paul Dockery.
1: And I'm Almaz Nikesh.
2: And we're... Sorting Sorting the ground.
1: ground. A 10-year-old plan for utility-scale solar development on Western public lands is getting a makeover and will likely expand to include the Northwest. The U.S. Bureau of Land Management in Sacramento on January 18th held the second of 12 scoping meetings to seek public input regarding its update to the agency's Western solar plan. A change to the programmatic environmental impact statement for solar energy development could add Oregon, Washington, Idaho, Montana, and Wyoming. Coverage by Abigail Sawyer in California Energy Markets.
2: The U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission issued its final rule in the Federal Register to certify a new scale. New scale powers small modular reactor. The company's power module becomes the first SMR design certified by the NRC and just the seventh reactor design cleared for use in the United States. I
0: wanted to make a comment on that one. Yeah, go back for in it. O- back in October this last year. Our um, some of our board members and myself, we went to the New Scale facility in Corvallis. Really exciting tour, really interesting to get more information. We were there with some customers of the Utah Associated Municipal Power Systems, UAMPS. Got a lot of really great information. Very interesting prospect for not only decarbonization, but also a baseload resource. Lots of uh, challenges, of course, around cost and maintaining schedule, but one to watch.
2: A lot of qualified carrying capacity associated with those types of resources.
3: That's true. Paul, can I jump in? Yes, (laughs) With my yes. Pitch. The,
2: well, <laughs> yes. Go for it. Pitch us.
3: Yes, because there's so many uh, different technologies in this space. I uh, invited a few. PNUC board members and other industries to uh, discuss this Im- uh, this emerging resource, uh, nuclear power resources. And so, uh, New Scale uh, Terra Power, uh, Energy Northwest, and um, Kevin Dort from Grant PUD will be uh, at the PNUC meeting on a panel discussion about uh, new advanced nuclear resources. So, super excited for that conversation on Friday.
2: Oh, that's that's coming up. It's this week. It's probably people will be listening to this episode. That will have already occurred, actually. So, <laughs> so we hope you were there and you remember this fondly. <laughs> Take it away, Abbas.
1: A hopeful January 20th tweet by Brian Nichols, the U.S. Assistant Secretary of State for Western Hemisphere Affairs, said there is an opportunity to reach an agreement in principle by summer 2023 on a modernized treaty regime for the Columbia River Basin. Nichols' tweet prompted an equally hopeful response from Katrine Conroy, British Columbia's minister responsible for the Columbia River Treaty. For more on the status of negotiations, find coverage by Casey Mahaffey, in clearing up. I was just going to add to that
0: one that one of the functions of the Western Power Pool is to run operational analysis and planning under the Pacific Northwest Coordination Agreement, which is an agreement that, that essentially operationalizes some aspects of the treaty. So if the treaty is renegotiated, it likely means a renegotiation or a relook at least at certain aspects of the PNCA that we do here at the pool.
2: Wow. You're in all this. There's it's lot like of you're things. a yeah, we do. Western yeah. powerful. You do everything. <laughs> Vice President Kamala Harris attended a January 19th groundbreaking for the 125-mile 500 KV 10 West Link transmission line between Arizona and California, along with Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm, Interior Secretary Deb Haaland, Arizona Governor Katie Hobbs, and Kaiso's CEO Elliot Mainzer. The line will run from Maricopa County, Arizona, to Southern California Edison's Colorado River substation just west of Blythe. The line will offer 3,200 megawatts of capacity and interconnection capability for future solar projects in Arizona. More coverage and clearing up by Jim DePisa.
3: Paul, I'm so glad you read the names of those dignitaries. Uh, Jennifer Groundholm, Deb Hallen, Katie Hobbs. Oh, and then there's that guy, Elliot Mainzer. <laughs>
2: <I> mean, <laughs> talk about dignitary. We know that guy.
3: Yeah, but all those among all those great, remarkable women.
1: Very cool.
2: That's right. That is nice.
1: The U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission provided a January 24th notice to Pacific Gas and Electric, denying its request that the agency resume its review of a 2009 operating license application for the Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant. The NRC will instead require it to start from scratch with a new one. The decision represents a possible threat to the state's grid reliability if the plan to keep its last operating nuclear generating station open doesn't materialize. For more, find Jason Fortney's coverage in California Energy Markets.
2: Billions in federal dollars could make the Pacific Northwest a hub for renewable hydrogen. That's a quote. That's the episode title on OPB for a conversation with Ken Dragon, the Director of Hydrogen Development at Obsidian Renewables, and Rebecca Smith, a Senior Energy Policy Analyst at the Oregon Department of Energy from January 20th. They discussed the Department of Energy's $8 billion in funding for hydrogen hubs and the Northwest applicants for the funding.
1: The California ISO is deferring the decision on the day ahead market enhancements initiative to a future joint ISO board of governors and Western Balance market meetings meeting to provide to provide more time to consider stakeholder feedback, according to a notice issued by CAISO on January 23rd. The issue will still remain on the agenda as an informal briefing item for the February 1st meeting.
0: My understanding on that one is that... uh...
1: They didn't obtain sufficient
0: stakeholder consensus on some aspects of day ahead market enhancements, otherwise known as DAME. And there are a lot of elements of DAME that have been linked to extended day ahead market or EDAM. And so this decision to delay DAME is about making sure that EDAM goes forward, but also providing stakeholders uh, potentially more engagement opportunity around some of the design elements of Dame, particularly how the imbalanced reserve product is going to be designed.
2: Good insight, thank you. Good context. Spot market power in the Northwest for delivery today, January 30th, is at $172 per megawatt hour, with Northwest gas at $9 per MMBTU, translating to a spark spread of $109 and a heat rate of $19,100. Spot power in the Southwest is at $70.50, Southern California at $126.42, and Northern California at $128.19. February gas at Henry Hub is at $3.11 per MMBTU. Still huge price spread between Henry Hub and Sumas.
1: Indeed. Lastly, checking Northwest water supply forecasts. October through September flows at the Dalles for water year 2023 are currently forecasted to be 77% of normal. And April to December is at 81%. Day ending elevation at Grand Coulee for January 29th was 1,275 feet, a four foot draw over the past week.
2: That's it for our TLDR segment. Thanks to Public Power Underground's production partners at News Data for letting us use their leads. If you want to know more, you can find complete stories in California Energy Markets and Clearing Up. Let's close it out. Are you ready, ready Almaz? Let's do it. That's, That's short to ground. Ooh, Any what? topics in there? <laughs> Any topics in there we wanted to go a little bit deeper on? You uh, want to cover more, Sarah?
0: That was a lot. I was actually uh gave me a chance to read up on some stuff I was less familiar with. I'm really interested on what happens with new scale and how they move forward. So thanks for the opportunity to engage on those.
2: Yeah, it's good topics going a lot lot going on in, in power. Uh Crystal, anything else you wanted to dig a little bit deeper into?
3: Well, Paul, you used to provide like a snow report. Um, so I was thinking about that. Uh I know, I know, but still uh it's pretty It's a pretty tough season in the Northwest, uh, for snow. Um, just, it hasn't showed up.
2: Yeah. And quite frankly, my kids want to sled and we haven't gotten any (laughs) sledding snow. I mean, selfishly personally, but also professionally, we'd like some snow so we can produce some, some actual power in August. That'd be nice. Yeah. Uh, Anything you want to dig into?
1: No, I'm good.
2: Okay. That's all we're covering this week. Wonderful job being a celebrity guest star, Sarah. I hope you feel valued and appreciated.
0: I do. Thank you so much for having me. Also, just thank you to the underground for the coverage on rap. You've been a really great place for people to learn more about the program. I appreciate last week's uh, episode touching on a lot of aspects in this one. So maybe you're your audience will get a break from wrap for a minute, but um, we'll be back with any material developments as they occur. There's a lot ahead.
2: There is a lot ahead. Uh, and the tariff, whatever happens at FERC with the tariff will be breaking news. Maybe I can actually schedule like a, a emergency pod when we get breaking <laughs> news. on That'd be fun, wouldn't it?
3: Yes. Especially be great. Especially if even, be I want to be on that one. <laughs>
2: Uh, Crystal, thank you for participating. You always bring preparation and insight. I always enjoy not only your enthusiasm and optimism, but also the the professionalism and insight you bring. So thank you for doing this. I hope you feel about it and appreciate it. I do, I do. Good. Uh, Almaz, uh, every week we do this, I learn something more from you. Thank you for being such a helpful and insightful person.
1: Thank you, Paul. And good to see you, uh, Crystal and Sarah. You Oh, this
3: was so fun.
2: <laughs> was this was a lot of fun. Public Power Underground is the power industry's premier infotainment program that covers electric utility and electric utility adjacent news from a power department's perspective. You can sign up for an unintrusive newsletter with links to ways to consume this fascinating content at publicpowerunderground.substack.com. Thanks to Pacific Northwest Utilities Conference Committee and our co-star Crystal Ball, PNUC's mission is to bring the power of good ideas together to assist Peanut members in fulfilling their company missions in this ever-changing electric industry. Learn more at Peanut. You don't have to be subscribed to NewsData's weekly newsletters to get this podcast, but it sure makes the podcast make a lot more sense. Public Power Underground for electric utility enthusiasts. Public Power Underground, it's work to watch. Public Power Underground is a production of Seattle City Light and NewsData. The views expressed to your own and not the official views of Seattle City Light, Tacoma Power, PNUC, NewsData, or the organization of the guests also appearing on Public Power Underground. Public Power Underground is an electric utility and electric utility adjacent news from a power department's perspective. This episode was written by Paul Dockery, Almaz Nagesh, and Crystal Ball. And it's edited and published by the stellar team at Pioneer Utility Resources, led by associate producer Sarah Wooten, with sound mixing by Lucas Smith and video editing by Brendan Delzer. Our theme song, Roll On Enthusiast, was rewritten, performed, and recorded by Aaron Gillery and Ian Bloodso. That's all for this week. Thanks for tuning in.